UN Climate Summit in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt. This is Democracy Now. Those who demonstrated yesterday did so again. What happens in Sharm stays in Sharm and does not represent the rest of the country. There is a certain bubble here um, in a UN protected zone. Uh, and uh, of course, the same everyday violations are continuing at the same pace all over the country. From the climate summit in Sharm el Sheikh to a climate of fear in the rest of Egypt, We'll speak with the leading Egyptian human rights advocate, Hossam Bahke, human rights about COP27, human rights in Egypt, and why civil society did not call for a boycott of this summit. Then we'll talk to one of the most prominent climate activists in Africa, Vanessa Nakate from Uganda. Big oil and gas companies and the leaders who are beholden to them are not trying to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius alive in this place. They are actually trying to suffocate 1.5, but they do it quietly and slowly so that no one will know until it's too late for all of us. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. The United Nations General Assembly has approved a resolution calling on Russia to pay reparations for its invasion of Ukraine and other violations of international law. A little less than half of the General Assembly's 193 members voted in favor of the resolution, while 14 voted against it including Russia, Iran, and China. 73 countries abstained, including Brazil, India, and South Africa. Ahead of Monday's vote, Ukraine's U.N. ambassador said it was time to hold Russia accountable. Accounts of atrocities committed by, Russia, by Russians in the occupied territories, murder, rape, torture, forced deportation, looting, they all speak for themselves. Millions of Ukrainians have been forced to leave their homes and seek shelter elsewhere. Ukraine will have the daunting task of rebuilding the country and recovering from this war. President Joe Biden said Monday he does not believe China is preparing to invade Taiwan. Biden's remarks at the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia, came after his first face-to-face -face meeting as president with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Speaking to reporters after their three-hour talk, Biden dismissed his critics' claims that U.S. military maneuvers in the Taiwan Strait are provoking a new Cold War. I absolutely believe there need not be a new Cold War. We, uh, I've met many times with Xi Jinping, and we were candid and clear with one another across the board. And I do not think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan. Here in Egypt, imprisoned British-Egyptian writer and technologist Al-Abdel Fattah 
has ended his hunger strike after more than seven months. The news came in a letter from prison today to his family. They're scheduled to have their monthly visit with him on Thursday, one day before his 41st birthday. In the letter, Allah wrote, quote, I'll see you on the visit day and tell you everything then, and we'll get back to long letters after the visit. The important thing is I want to celebrate my birthday with you on Thursday. I haven't celebrated for a long time. I want to celebrate with my cellmates. So bring a cake, normal provisions. I've broken my strike. I'll explain everything on Thursday. Lots of love. I miss you and long for your company, Allah. In response, his sister Mona Safe said, quote, I feel cautiously relieved now knowing that at least he's not on hunger strike. But my heart won't really be settled until Thursday when my mother and sister see him with their own eyes. The Biden administration has opened an FBI investigation into the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, the Palestinian-American journalist who was shot in the head and killed last May while covering an Israeli raid in the occupied West Bank. Even as she wore a helmet clearly labeled press, Israeli officials initially blamed Palestinians for her death, then called evidence inconclusive, before once again changing their story in September to say Abu Akla may have been accidentally hit by Israeli troops. But eyewitness accounts and videos of the area where Shireen was killed do not show a gun battle, and investigations by Al Jazeera, The New York Times, CNN, and other news outlets also challenge the official Israeli version of Abu Akleh's killing. Abu Akleh's family called the U.S. investigation an important step toward accountability, writing, it is what the United States should do when a U.S. citizen is killed abroad, especially when they were killed like Shireen by a foreign military, unquote. Israel's Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz, called the U.S. decision to investigate Shireen's killing a grave mistake adding, quote, I have made it clear to the U.S. that we won't cooperate with any external investigation and won't allow any interference in Israel's internal affairs, he said. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, fighting between the army and M23 rebels has moved closer to the eastern city of Goma. It's some of the worst violence in Congo's North Kivu region since government forces chased the rebels into neighboring Rwanda in 2013. The fighting has pushed thousands of internally displaced people into makeshift camps where they face dangerous and squalid conditions. The M23 attacked us the day before yesterday, and that's how we immediately made the decision to flee. I even left my wife and children behind. I didn't even take clothes. I don't have food here, and the hunger will kill us. According to the United Nations, at least 188,000 people have been displaced in eastern Congo in recent weeks. Over the weekend, Kenya's military began sending 900 troops to Congo in support of government forces. Back in the United States and Arizona, Democrat Katie Hobbs has been elected governor after nearly a week of ballot counting in the highly contested race. Hobbs narrowly defeated her Republican Trump-endorsed challenger, Carrie Lake, with 50.39 percent of the votes. Lake, a former news anchor and loyal supporter of Trump's false claims of a rigged 2020 presidential election, received 49.61 percent of the vote. Hobbs served as Arizona's Secretary of State and vocally defended Arizona's election system and the legitimacy of the 2020 election, making her the target of harassment from the far right ahead of November 8th. 
Carrie Lake would not say whether she would accept the results of the election if she lost. On Monday night, just after major news organizations called the race for her opponent, Carrie Lake tweeted, quote, Arizonans know BS when they see it. In more news from Arizona, voters have passed a ballot measure that will grant undocumented students in-state college tuition and scholarships if they attended high school in Arizona. The historic victory comes after a massive organizing campaign led by undocumented advocates who for years fought for state benefits. Nearly 16 years ago, Arizona overwhelmingly voted to ban undocumented students from getting in-state tuition. A federal appeals court has temporarily blocked the Biden administration's student loan relief program while it reviews a lawsuit by six Republican-led states. The challenge is being pushed by Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina, arguing Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 in student debt per person would deprive these states of tax revenue. The program had already been put on hold even after the Education Department had approved 16 million borrowers for up to $20,000 of relief out of 26 million who have applied for the program. In the largest higher education strike in U.S. history, some 48,000 graduate student workers at all 10 University of California campuses walked off the job Monday denouncing the university's bad faith bargaining practices with their union. The student workers, including researchers, teaching assistants and tutors, have organized with United Auto Workers and are fighting for higher wages, more childcare benefits, expanded family leave, among other demands. The University of Virginia lifted a campus-wide shelter-in-place order Monday after police arrested a suspect in Sunday evening's mass shooting following a 12-hour manhunt. A 22-year-old former football player and UVA student is accused of killing three other football players and wounding two other people. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been nearly 600 mass shootings and 39,000 gun deaths in the United States so far this year. The U.S. Supreme Court has paved the way for the House January 6th committee to subpoena the records of Kelly Ward, the chair of Arizona's Republican Party, who played a key role in efforts to overturn Joe Biden's win in the 2020 presidential election. Two justices, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, dissented from Monday's emergency ruling without citing reasons. Clarence Thomas's refusal to recuse himself from yet another January 6th ruling has led to renewed calls for his impeachment. Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, is a far-right activist who played a key role in efforts to keep Donald Trump in the White House after he lost the election. Meanwhile, former Vice President Mike Pence told ABC News in an interview broadcast Monday that Trump's actions on January 6th endangered his family, as well as everyone at the Capitol that day. Pence said he was angered over Trump's tweet on January 6th that Pence, quote, didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. And I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. Pence granted ABC News the interview just as he published his new memoir entitled, So Help Me God. Today, Donald Trump is expected to announce from his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach, Florida, that he's running for the presidency again in 2024. 
Amazon's planning to carry out massive layoffs, could cut as many as 10,000 jobs this week. That's according to multiple news outlets, including the Washington Post, which reports the layoffs are likely to target Amazon's corporate workforce. This follows recent mass layoffs at Facebook, Twitter, and Salesforce. Meanwhile, prices of digital currencies fell sharply over the weekend after the leading cryptocurrency exchange, FDX, filed for bankruptcy on Friday. FDX's rapid collapse has been compared to the implosion of Lehman Brothers in 2008 and the Ponzi scheme masterminded by Bernie Madoff. Overnight, it wiped out nearly all the wealth of 30-year-old CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, whose personal net worth was once valued at $26 billion. Regulators in the U.S. and the Bahamas have opened civil and criminal investigations into how hundreds of millions of dollars' worth of assets flowed out of FTX just ahead of its collapse. In more tech news, Google has agreed to pay nearly $400 million to settle 40 states' lawsuits accusing the tech giant of tracking smartphone users' movements even after they changed the software setting to opt out of sharing their location data. In a statement announcing the settlement, Oregon's attorney general said, quote, for years Google has prioritized profit over users' privacy. And over a dozen climate scientists and advocates were arrested last week as they blocked several U.S. airports protesting the destructive toll private jets have on the environment. Climate protesters targeted private airports in New Jersey, North Carolina, California, and Washington state as part of a coordinated global action that also saw demonstrations at at least 13 other private airports in 12 other countries. Among the protesters arrested was Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. I feel so awful doing this. It just I feel sick at heart. It just feels like incredibly messy. I feel gaslit by society, but I know this is the right thing to do. So despite the messiness of this moment, I am standing in solidarity with all of the Earth protectors around the world and with all the young people who feel desperate for their features. To see our interview with Peter Kalmus, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up from this UN climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh to a climate of fear in the rest of Egypt, we'll talk to leading Egyptian human rights advocate Hossam Bakhet. Stay with us. في جحيم تحت جلدي وامتيتي كبرتين والجهلانين ملتحين بورقتين ومقماحين وحاجبهم مرفوعين كطب وحدود البلد وشلت بكشد الكلام كلمتي عكلمتك جسدي وجلد بحرك الكلام حاسسني حاسسني انت حاسس في I'm 
Callum by Mashulela. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman. We are broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt. Tens of thousands of delegates have come here to Sharm el Sheikh to attend the COP27 UN Climate Conference. The summit's taking place under the most repressive regime in the history of the modern Egyptian state. Over the past decade, there's been an unprecedented crackdown on human rights, on civil society, on the media, on environmental activism, and much more. Tens of thousands of political prisoners are behind bars, the most prominent of which is the technologist, the activist, the writer, Ala Abdel Fattah, whose case has become a lightning rod here at the summit and who just ended a more than seven-month-long hunger strike. Meanwhile, outside Sharm, in Cairo and cities across Egypt, security forces have launched a widespread crackdown in the days leading up to and during the summit. Hundreds have been arrested. Security forces have locked down the streets, stopping random passersby, forcibly searching for content on their phones. Lawyers and journalists have been detained, including most recently the journalist Ahmed Fayez, who was arrested after posting that Al Abdel Fattah had been subject to a forced medical intervention. The Egyptian government, meanwhile, continues to tout its role as the host country of COP27 has been working to bolster its international legitimacy through the summit. For more on the human rights situation in Egypt and much more, we're joined by Hossam Bakhet, executive director and founder of the Egyptian Initiative for Human Rights, one of the country's leading human rights groups. He's also worked as an investigative journalist for the independent media outlet Maramasar. Over the years, Hossam Bakhet has been targeted by the government for his work. For the past seven years, he's been banned from traveling outside Egypt and had his personal assets frozen. In 2015, he was arrested and held for several days while under investigation by the military prosecutor before he was released following international outcry. Hossam Bakhet, it's wonderful to have you back on Democracy Now!, but today we are in your country, we are in Egypt, though Sharm el-Sheikh doesn't exactly feel like uh, the rest of Egypt, is that right? Can you talk about the significance of this climate summit? Um, in this climate of fear for Egyptians outside this resort city? Now, uh, of course, um, it doesn't um, really represent the the rest of the country in normal times, uh, but especially during these two weeks, um, there is um, a certain degree of freedom, uh, at least inside the UN zone, the so-called blue zone, uh, where Egyptians uh, can, for the first time in many years, express their views, hold public debates, uh, speak freely to the media, uh, but also interact with um, civil society and climate justice activists from all over the world uh, without fear of um, prompt, instant um, reprisal, but of course with the fear of reprisal after COP on everyone's mind. But And how does it feel for you here in Sharm el-Sheikh? I mean, you are banned from leaving Egypt. This must be such an unusual experience to meet with people around the world. Uh, definitely. I mean, it's uh, it's like really traveling to another country, um, except um, the world sort of came to Egypt 
uh, for these two weeks. Um, that, that it's not just the kind of access that we have to official delegations, uh, but the con- kind of connectedness um, and um, rebuilding of relationships and building of future uh, partnerships um, around um, the issues of human rights and climate justice and environmental justice. But most importantly, it is being able to breathe, um, really, because uh, COP brought with it um, uh, this um, level of oxygen uh, that Egypt um, has been lacking for the past eight years. So let's talk about what's happened through this period. I mean, in Sharm el-Sheikh, um, uh, you have the climate summit. But in Cairo, people are being picked off the streets. You have the story of the journalist who reported on um, Ala Abdel Fattah's medical condition being arrested among, well, we have reports of hundreds of people arrested among the tens of thousands who are imprisoned right now. Yeah, I mean, this is just one glimpse, really, of what happens on a daily basis in Egypt. And it goes to show um, in uh, very clear terms how what's happening within the blue zone in Sharm el-Sheikh has not really uh, stopped or uh, changed the behavior of the Egyptian government um, um, in other cities and especially in Cairo. There was a call for protests Um, that came from um, opposition figures in the diaspora living in exile um, marked at the 11th of November uh, to coincide. Last Friday, 11-11. Correct. Um, Before, I mean, to to coincide with with, um, uh, COP and, of course, before um, the government of Egypt reacted in the typical uh, paranoid and excessive way. So for many weeks, uh, security was everywhere on the streets. Um, we saw the return of uh, random stops and arrests, um, the illegal searching of uh, mobile phones, looking for um, not just any um, uh, critical posts, uh, but really whether the person had even liked um, or shared a critical post or had any interest in politics at all. Um, the um, tally kept by independent human rights organizations uh, from October till mid-November, till yesterday, uh, is over 600 people arrested. About 40 of them have not reappeared yet, so are still uh, forcibly disappeared, and including around 24 women. And yet you did not support a boycott of the summit. Why? Uh, When Egypt was first uh, declared uh, as the host of COP27 uh, late last year, there there were some calls, especially from outside of Egypt, uh, for campaigning to relocate or reconsider that decision. Uh, We disagreed with um, these calls. And then there were calls on activists to boycott uh, this summit. And again, we disagreed and actually urged activists from around the world to use this opportunity to come to Egypt. Egypt has not allowed um, international human rights organizations or independent uh, social justice activists to come into the country uh, since at least 2014. Um, Organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch came to Egypt this week for the first time in nine years. Uh, So 
um, it's not just um, this lifeline of support um, that we needed, but also a global spotlight um, that was, um, uh, you know, uh, put on Egypt uh, for a few weeks before and the two weeks of the COP uh, that we haven't had in a number of years. Because as you know, you know, Egypt is only in the news when there is a crisis. And from the outside, Egypt appears to be a stable country in a very unstable region. And there's a degree of normalization with the level of abuse in Egypt, a story that says that the Egyptian regime arrested dissidents is old news, unfortunately. It doesn't capture the world attention anymore. And it became even um, more difficult after the war in Ukraine. The world had forgotten about Egypt. So this is really a, um, an important opportunity for us to be back in the spotlight, to use this opportunity to highlight the magnitude of the human rights crisis in the country and mobilize solidarity around it. And just to be clear, you talk about Human Rights Watch being allowed back into the country, yet you have all of these hundreds of websites that Egyptians um, are blocked from accessing. Can you explain that? For example, even like WhatsApp. Yeah, I mean, since um, around 2017, the government uh, uh, decided to really uh, block any independent website that carried any uh, critical uh, views or information about Egypt. The problem is not just um, foreign websites uh, like uh, Human Rights Watch and uh, Al-Hurra and Reporters Without Borders. The problem is that this blackout targeted 100% of independent Egyptian media outlets. So the number of news organizations that are Egyptian, that um, are reporting news from Egypt, that are available to the Egyptian people is now zero. People have to, uh, you know, download VPN in order to access these websites. So the government simply went around and blocked around 400 VPN websites so that Egyptian readers do not even have the app to download in order to access these um, news organizations. Uh, the number of blocked websites uh, so far is over 600, um, and all of them are blocked illegally, so not according to Egypt's abusive laws even, or any legal regulation. Uh, it's just uh, security authorities that decide to pull the plug on any media organization or human rights organization that carries critical views. Uh you know, Hassan Bakat, I introduced you as a leading human rights advocate, but you are perhaps the leading investigative journalist in Egypt. And I wanted um, the camera to go to the two-shot right now um, and look across the room from us. We're right outside the plenary. Right across from us, um, it says UMS, and you've got the UN Climate Summit logo, um, and you've got men who've been sitting there all day, you did an investigation of how the Egyptian military, uh, through um, a private equity group, bought up most of the media in Egypt. Can you explain what we're looking at here? Yeah. I mean, um, UMS stands for United Media Services. Uh, this is a company um, that was established by Egypt's uh, General Intelligence Service uh, for the sole purpose of purchasing all privately owned um, TV stations, newspapers, and uh, news websites. Um, 
Of course, uh, anyone familiar with Egypt, even under the autocratic rule of Mubarak, remembers that um, despite the limits on freedom of expression and uh, free media, uh, Egypt had a vibrant media scene through uh, privately owned um, independent uh, journalism uh, that um, really um, led Egypt to stand out uh, even uh, within the Middle East uh, for its uh, level of accountability, uh, journalism, and independent reporting. Uh, shortly after President Sisi came to power, he started openly complaining uh, about two things, about uh, critical or opposition voices expressed in the media, or, and, and also about the hours of political talk show uh, every night that Egyptians turn to religiously every evening to follow the news and to learn um, about what's happening in the country. Uh, and so uh, the intelligence service simply went to one media outlet after the other and um, bought it over. And then all of uh, the media of the country is now um, under this UMS, United Media Services, or Al-Muttahida. Um, and that has really turned Egypt within four years into, you know, Uzbekistan, Belarus, Syria under Assad, where the headlines of every newspaper are the same. There is one news bulletin that is read out in every TV station, and there isn't a single opposition newspaper or even column in Egypt now. When you did the expose and the military takeover of the media, what happened to you when you did it for Madamasar? Um, I got in trouble before that one for other uh, investigations that also looked into um, uh, the military and security establishment uh, takeover of the state, really state capture by security agencies, if you want. Um, and then when we, uh, when I got into uh, looking at this uh, secret media acquisition, uh, of course our website was blocked, and then it was repeatedly blocked every time we relaunched it. And then eventually the government went public, and it. It's actually now a well-known fact that um, United Media Services is owned by General Intelligence. They take pride even in that fact. How did you get accreditation, Hossam, to this UN Climate Summit? There were others, even uh, foreign human rights activists, that got even accreditation and were denied entry here. How did you get to come here? Believe me, it wasn't easy. Um, so, uh, you know, all Egyptian organizations had to apply for a special permit to come for this COP only um, and to apply to the Egyptian COP presidency, the Egyptian foreign ministry. Uh, so we couldn't apply directly to the UN uh, for, uh, for observer status. Uh, the Egyptian government kept uh, that process uh, secret. The very existence of that process was never announced and then went around and hand-picked, uh, effectively pre-selected uh, the Egyptian organizations to invite. And then <clears throat> um, all the names of human rights organizations that sought to receive this one-time accreditation were rejected. Uh, so ultimately, the Egyptian government picked um, around 30-odd um, um, civil society organizations, um, and the number of human rights groups on that list was zero. Um, so what we had to do is, um, of course, go around to uh, partners in international organizations that have observer status from the UN and ask them to include us in their delegation. So I'm not here representing an Egyptian human rights organization, my organization. Uh, I um, got here 
here uh, with a badge from a German climate group uh, called German Zero, and I thank them very much. Uh, but without them, really, I would not have been here. And the same is true for any Egyptian human rights defender who is on the ground in Sharm el-Sheikh this week. Well, Hassan Bakat, there is someone uh, who is not here on the ground, though, uh, as a number of people said, should be the main person addressing world leaders, and that is Allah, Allah um, uh, al-Fatah. And he is a leading political activist back to the... Um, Tahrir uh, to the Arab Spring. He's been in prison for most of the last 10 years. Now, one world leader after another has come here. Um, the German chancellor uh, has called on Sisi, uh, the president of Egypt, to free him. Macron, the president of France, did it through AFP, Agence France Presse. Um, what about President Biden? He was here on 11-11. He was here on uh, Friday for a couple of hours with a large delegation uh, with Nancy Pelosi and others, the House Speaker. Um, can you talk about what the U.S. is demanding uh, in terms of Allah, who's just finished a seven-month hunger fast um, and what that meeting between Sisi and Biden was, what we understand, did Biden make any demands, call for his release, his freedom? He is a British-Egyptian human rights leader. Um, to our knowledge, there isn't really um, a single head of state or government uh, that came to um, COP um, and uh, had a bilateral meeting with President Sisi uh, that didn't raise the case of political prisoners in general and Ala Abdel Fattah in particular because, of course, um, uh, Ala's case became much more critical just before COP because a week before he went on a full hunger strike after, as you say, seven months of a partial hunger strike. and then on Including the drinking no water for On the very days. first day of the summit, uh, he stopped drinking water. And um, uh, so that, of course, became uh, the most urgent, most uh, critical case. And um, our understanding is that uh, President Biden, as well as uh, several members, uh, senior members of um, his delegation, uh, raised uh, the case of Ale with their counterparts. Um, unfortunately, the um, um, Egyptian government uh, has not only resisted all these calls for Ale to be released um, or uh, deported to the UK, but also have kept him um, um, with absolutely no contact with the outside world for the last uh, two weeks until we got the very first note from him yesterday with proof of life uh, saying that he started drinking water. Um, and then today we got the uh, letter uh, that you read out that says he has ended his, his strike. Uh, so, of course, we're very relieved about that. Um, but as you say, Ala is only one of uh, many thousands of other political prisoners um, that um, uh, are in jail in open-ended um, pretrial detention or have been convicted uh, simply for having expressed dissenting views or exercised uh, peaceful activism. Do you know what's going to happen? His family, his sister and mother are expected to visit. I don't know if it's one or two who can go into the prison for the first time in a, quite a while on Thursday. His birthday is Friday. He's asked for a birthday cake. May have news for them. But in fact, last week, the lawyer was told he could go visit him. He was denied. He went back. He went back. He was denied. Um, and 
What role do international leaders play when it comes to this? I mean, the U.S. gives billions of dollars of military aid to Egypt. So whatever Biden said behind closed doors makes an enormous difference. The U.S. has enormous power, as do other Western countries. Uh, absolutely. And, um, a, a, you know, we're all anxiously waiting for Thursday um, because this will be the first time that Ta'ala uh, will have been seen uh, since October 31st, uh, the last uh, visit. Um, as you said, um, his lawyer three times received official permit uh, to visit him and three times was turned away. Um, it is um, um, our um, speculation uh, that perhaps uh, prison authorities and security agencies uh, did not want Ale to be seen uh, in a very weak state um, after uh, all these um, weeks and months uh, of strike, especially because they have been repeatedly lying on the record saying that Ale was not striking at all. Uh, so I think they were buying time maybe um, uh, until Ale maybe regains uh, some health and strength before they allow him to be seen by anyone. Um, of course, um, the United States um, uh, is an influential uh, country in the world, and especially so when it comes to Egypt, um, uh, given not just the military uh, support, uh, but you know a strategic um, and, and long relationship. Um, and um, the Egyptian regime in the past uh, two years has actually shown some sensitivity to uh, outside criticism um, and an effort to improve its image, um, perhaps in the lead up to the COP. Uh, and, you know, I've taken some positive uh, signals to the outside world in terms of releasing some political prisoners or the recent call for a national dialogue with the opposition. Uh, that goes to show really that the sustained engagement with the Egyptian government in public and private about its catastrophic human rights record can actually lead to some change. Can you talk about the American style, I think that's how the Egyptian government refers to it, prisons that Sisi has built. Uh, in fact, he referred to what you're just saying in his meeting with Biden when the press gaggle came out. Uh, he was the first to raise human rights as if to um, uh, preempt something that Biden could say. But what these prisons are, like where Allah is held... Um, what the president called um, American-style uh, prisons, um, I, I mean, I think when the president said it, uh, he thought it was a good thing. Uh, and in his mind, uh, he was perhaps refer referring to uh, the size of the prison uh, complex and um, uh, the fact that it was maybe better maintained uh, compared to Egypt's um, very old and uh, crowded uh, prisons. But as the case of Ale and countless others uh, came to show us, these two shiny prisons continued to act with the same utter disregard for the rule of law. Um, openly violating Egypt's own prison regulations, refusing to implement um, permits, visiting permits uh, issued by the country's top public prosecutor and denying Ale the most uh, basic uh, rights. Ale, in his letter today, is celebrating, announcing to his family that they allowed an MP3 player in. This is the first time in three years that Ale will be allowed to listen to music. And that's unlike every other prisoner 
in that prison. You know, for three years, Ala was campaigning for the prison authorities to pick any book of their choosing from the prison library to allow him to read. Mm. For three years, he was not allowed to read a book, to listen to music, to have a radio, to get out of his cell. And that just goes to show you how vindictive this state is and how adamant they were at breaking him. But he stood and stood strong and actually, um, you know, managed... Um, to, to stay not just alive, but incredibly lucid and in very high spirits. Compare Egypt today with Egypt uh, that he and so many others um, protested 10 years ago, uh, the Arab Spring, what happened in Tahrir, what that meant not only for Egypt, but for the world. What happened in this 10 years? Uh, what, ha- what has Sisi brought this country to? I mean... Back then, um, and, and of course you covered it extensively, under Mubarak we worked and organized um, because, of course, it was a country with a very troubling human rights um, uh, record. Uh, there were ongoing violations, some of them systemic, with impunity and um, you know, a, a complete failure of accountability. Uh, but it was you know, an authoritarian country, that, and we were fighting for democracy. What we have right now is a full-scale human rights crisis uh, that made Egypt really, as I said, you know, uh, in in the same state as, you know, Belarus and Uzbekistan and other countries where it's not just that um, human rights violations are rampant, but that we have a regime that became one of the worst abusers of human rights in the whole world. And that's not an emotional statement. If you uh, look up any independent ranking of uh, countries around the world on any measure of human rights, uh, you know, you will find Egypt among the worst three or five violators. Look at the number of journalists in prison. We're number three in the world after Turkey and China. Last year, we were number one in the world in terms of the number of death sentences, number three in terms of the number of actually carried out executions, the sheer population of political prisoners, the number of blocked websites, the number of, um, you know, the the almost non-existing media sphere, and the full criminalization of uh, human rights work, where every human rights defender is facing Uh, criminal charges, asset freezes, travel bans, not just myself. Uh, And where engaging in any act of peaceful opposition uh, has become grounds for imprisonment with no future of release. So my last question is what makes you so brave and what gives you hope? I mean, the UN Climate Summit ends this week. That is a level of protection that you and other people in civil society will not have. The level to which you are speaking out right now, you can't leave Egypt. What could happen to you now? I mean, we knew that we were uh, that we had to take a risk, uh, of course, um, and we always knew that it was only a two-week conference. So ultimately, it will be over, and we will all be back in Cairo. But it was really a choice between, um, you know, uh, not doing anything and wasting this uh, huge opportunity of having a UN summit on Egyptian soil, uh, or taking that risk. Uh, and facing possible consequences afterwards. Uh, Initially, we decided to take that risk, that it was worth it. And then with Ala's hunger strike, of course, um, you know, we lost any hesitation or fear. And we decided that, you know, we did not just have an opportunity, but an obligation to use this opportunity to tell our 
our story. We hope that the world is not going to forget about Egypt once the COP is over and um, so this uh, spotlight goes elsewhere. Uh, but even if that happens, um, it will have been well worth it. Hassan Bakhat, uh, all the best to you, founder and executive director of the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, EIPR, based in Cairo. He's also worked as an investigative journalist for the independent media outlet Maramasar. For the past seven years, he's been banned from traveling outside Egypt and had his personal assets frozen. Thanks so much. Coming up, we speak to one of the most prominent climate activists in the world, Vanessa Nakate of Uganda. Stay with us. Straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy. Oh, Papa Sire, please take me home. Papa San, everybody, they want to go home. So Mama San says. by The Clash. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we broadcast live from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. We look now at how the crisis is impacting Africa. We're joined by one of the continents, one of the world's most prominent climate activists, Vanessa Nakate from Kampala, Uganda. She's the author of A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis. Earlier today, in an event here at the UN Climate Talks, Vanessa Nakate condemned world leaders for investing in new fossil fuel projects. She also warned the summit is being turned into a, quote, sales and marketing conference for more pollution and more destruction and more devastation. Vanessa Nakate joins us now. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's an honor to have you with us, Vanessa. Thank you so much. Why don't you continue on that theme? Now, you were at a side conference. Have you ever addressed the plenary? 
No, I haven't. Do you want to? I would love to. Tell us what you would tell world leaders. Well, um, I would tell world leaders that we really need to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius alive. At just 1.2 degrees Celsius, so many communities are suffering some of the worst impacts of the climate crisis. I recently made a visit to Turkana, a region in the Horn of Africa, and we are seeing the worst drought in the Horn of Africa. This is in Kenya? Yes, in Kenya. And so many children are suffering from severe acute malnutrition. So it's really important that our leaders keep 1.5 degrees Celsius alive. Talk about what you mean by this has become a kind of marketing uh, extravaganza. Well, um, apparently we have more than 600 fossil fuel lobbyists at this scope. And yet so many communities and activists from the front lines of the climate crisis weren't able to make it here. There is a quote that I read recently that said, if you're going to discuss about malaria, do not invite the mosquitoes. So for me, it's a worry that we have over 600 fossil fuel lobbies in this place. It's a worry for our future. It's a worry for our planet. It's a worry for the people. This has been described as... Africa's COP here in Northern Africa. Do you see this as Africa's COP? Well, um, many people, of course, are calling it an African COP, and it can only live up to that name if the climate crisis is addressed and if what is needed, what the communities from the African continent are demanding for, are fulfilled. And one of those things is the loss and damage finance facility. The climate crisis is pushing so many communities beyond adaptation. You cannot adapt to starvation. You can't adapt to extinction. And that is what is happening right now. Loss and damage is affecting so many communities. So for me, what will make it an African COP is ensuring that there is an establishment of a loss and damage finance facility and also supporting a just transition to renewable energy while addressing the energy poverty on the African continent. Uh, we were talking to Nemo Bassi, your colleague in Nigeria, who has probably gone to more cops than you've lived years. <laughs> um, but he talked about this being the lost and damaged cop. When you say loss and damage, it just rolls off your tongue. You have been at several of these cops, but the rest of the world, that's UN lingo. Explain exactly what you mean, the gritty facts on the ground, what loss and damage means, and who needs to pay for reparations. Well, uh, loss and damage looks like what I've just explained, you know, what I saw in Turkana. Children, women, and people suffering, having no access to water, having no access to food, and doctors referring to, you know, the cases of so many children in hospitals as wasted cases because of the severe acute malnutrition. Loss and damage is what we see happening in Pakistan. The flooding that left over 1,500 people dead and over 33 million people displaced. It is what is happening in Nigeria as a result of the floods. It is what, is ha what has happened on the African continent, you know, with the cyclones. So it's really understanding the impacts of the climate crisis that are pushing communities beyond adaptation. 
Can you talk about ECOP? Um, you're from Uganda. Uh, you've spoken out against the East African crude oil pipeline, ECOP, um, which will run through Uganda and Tanzania. What are your concerns? Well, uh, my concerns are that, you know, fossil fuel companies like Total are promising... Total is the French oil company. Yes, they are promising, you know, the people in my country and all, all other investments in Africa that they are bringing economic progress. But we've seen decades of fossil fuel investments on the African continent. They haven't brought economic progress. So my worry is that, you know, the environment and biodiversity is going to be destroyed we are going to find ourselves in an accelerated climate crisis and po- profits are going to end up in pockets of already rich people. The energy is going to be loaded onto ships you know, and taken to Europe. And the people in Africa will still not have access to the electricity that, hasn't, you know, that has been promised. If the fossil fuel you know, industry really meant that they were bringing energy on the African continent, then we wouldn't have 600, over 600 million people on the African continent still struggling to find access to electricity. So you're talking about the massive problems that Africa and other parts of the world face. But you're also engaged in solutions at the local level. Talk about what you're doing in Uganda. So in Uganda, I work with the Rise Up movement. And what we do, we, one of the things that we do is to carry out climate education in schools and also reach out to communities to tell them about what is happening and, and about their role in addressing the climate crisis. But I also run a project which involves the installation of solar panels and eco-friendly cookstoves in schools in Uganda. And so far we've done installations in 31 schools. I started this project to help drive a trans- transition to renewable energy in the schools in Uganda and also to carry out climate education in schools and ensure that schools have alternatives, you know, to cleaner cooking stoves and also alternatives to the energy that they can use. Wait a second. Today is November 15th? Yes. Is it true that it's your birthday? Yes. That it is your B-Earth Day? Do you spell it B-E-A-R-T-A-D-A-Y? And you're 26 years old? Yes. What would you consider the greatest birthday present coming out of this cop? Well, I Happy mean... Happy birthday! <laughs> thank you so much. Well, I mean, it would be having people and justice at the center of the negotiations. And that will look like a loss and damage finance facility that will look like a just transition to renewable energy. You know, that will look like no new fossil fuel investments, and that is coal, oil, and gas. Wait, by my calculations, um, let's see, uh, you're 26 years old. Yeah. And this is COP27, that means 27 years of the Conference of Parties of the UN Climate Summit. The COP has been meeting all of your life. Exactly. And it's worrying that we've had 27 COPs now and global temperatures continue to rise and the climate crisis continues to accelerate and communities continue to suffer and our leaders continue not to do anything about it. 
So let's talk about the leaders of the countries that have historically emitted the most uh, greenhouse gases. You have the United States, historically the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world, and per capita one of the largest greenhouse gas emitters today. China, the largest current greenhouse gas emitter. Uh, Xi and Biden met on Monday. What do they need to do? Uh, when people say, why, if we're dealing with all these problems in the United States, um, should we be giving money to other countries? Talk about why and how that money should be targeted. Well, I think that it's a moral responsibility for historic emitters and also current emitters to address the climate crisis. I was able to, you know, listen to President Biden speak, and I think that we desperately needed greater leadership from President Biden and the United States. I think that the United States has a huge responsibility to not only address the climate crisis, to not only address loss and damage, but to put money to support communities that are suffering right now. And when we talk about this money, we need this money to be able to go to communities that need it, and for this money to go in form of small, accessible grants, not loans to add on already existing debt. So for me, for the current and historic emitters, they need to take responsibility for the climate crisis, and they need to pay for this crisis. You know, this is an unusual cop because of the emphasis on human rights. I mean, you have Allah uh, Abdullah Fatah in prison among tens of thousands of Egyptians. This is taking place in Egypt, this UN Climate Summit. And you have climate justice advocates from around the world. You all joined together on Saturday um, saying that you can't separate these two issues. Talk about how that is integral for you as well. Well, I mean, our fight for climate justice is a fight for human rights. We've seen how, you know, the climate crisis is violating the rights of so many people across the world. And to go back to the story of Turkana, what I saw there was children struggling to find water, struggling to find food, you know, and some of the communities that are visited uh, you know, beyond Uganda that are suffering because of air pollution. These are people struggling to find access or, you know, to even breathe uh, clean air. So our fight for climate justice is indeed a fight for human rights. And we cannot have climate justice without ensuring that the rights of the people are protected. Final words to this global audience that is listening to everything you say? Well, I mean... Well, it's very hard, you know, to find words to say when you know what is happening, especially in the negotiations and what is happening at the COP. But what I hope is that our leaders, you know, can inspire us with action. I hope that our leaders can inspire us with true climate leadership. Well, Vanessa Nakate, I think you've shown what leadership looks like. Thank you. We thank you very much for being with us. And again, happy, happy birthday. Thank you. Vanessa Nakate, climate justice activist, speaking to us. Um, uh, she usually is in Uganda. She's the author of her memoir, A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate 
uh, crisis. And that does it for our show. By the way, Juan Gonzalez will be giving a speech Friday at the Columbia School of Journalism, reflecting on his 40 years of fighting for racial and social justice in journalism. It begins at 4.10 p.m. on Friday. See democracynow.org for more information. A very special thanks to our colleagues here in Sharm el-Sheikh, to Hani Massoud, to Sharif Abdel-Kudus, Dennis Moynihan, Nirmeen Sheikh. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.